Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just entertain, but educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Every day, every kind of around the middle of the day, I look at what stocks are up the most. I try to get a feel for things. But when I look today, they were the Dow gained 224 points. S&P climbed 0.85%. NASDAQ pole voided 1.39%. Do you know that there was just no commonality at all? Ah, we had the airlines, financial technology, some gaming stocks, defense, healthcare, chip stocks, software. No unifying theme whatsoever. And that's when it dawned on me. The key to this amazingly bullish bounce back today, the market's breath was stunning. It was an across-the-board romp. How these rallies happen, I think it's instructive to unpack this one and get our heads around why we can surge higher and what, come on, is widely regarded as an uncertain time, to say the least. First, I know I'm in the minority when I say this, at least among professional commentators, but today's rebound was all about China blinking. Whether you like it or not, or believe it or not, the president just threatened to slap new tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese exports. Well, what did the Chinese do? They did nothing. No retaliation. When that happens and the stocks of American companies that do business in China start to rally, it emboldens other investors. People don't want to be crosswise with this one. You don't want to find out that MasterCard or Visa or American Express have just been granted the right to expand into the People's Republic by themselves, not joint ventures. I say, let a billion credit cards bloom. I don't know. These stocks were up again yesterday. They're up today. I mean, can we really be like the warden in Shawshank and be this obtuse? Don't we have to conclude that the market believes something's happening and that the market could be right? Sure, we don't want to put too much emphasis on today's conciliatory rhetoric from Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Back in March, Mnuchin told us he was hopeful that there could be a truce in the trade war with China. Back in May, he told us that the trade war was on hold. Both times, you got had if you took him too seriously. The truth is, if you want the White House to be less aggressive on trade, you need to hear this kind of rhetoric, not from Mnuchin, but from Peter Navarro, the president's closest advisor on trade. And I think that's pretty darn unlikely. You know what it could happen? Create a whole new bull market itself, 5% up, not a problem. Here's what really matters, though, okay? We know that when the president's preoccupied with something, whether it be NATO or the Queen of England, we're going to have a resbite for angry tweets about China. Of course, we just got some angry tweets about Germany instead. But that's a lot less damaging to our stock market. As for Britain, the NFL plays in London now. It's like home field for everybody. 
Same goes for the President of the United States. Or to put it in words that every trader knows you can't short this market if China grants American Express the right to sell credit cards without a joint venture partner. It would be such a tremendous gesture. If MasterCard gets an instant license, it would be priceless. The Chinese could say it has nothing to do with trade in order to save face. But it wouldn't matter as actions speak a heck of a lot louder than words. I think that possibility is part of the reason the credit card stocks ran big for the second day in a row. Yep, China blinking is a key prop to this rally, and it allowed all the usual suspects that got hammered yesterday to go right back up, as I said they would. It was as, it was as if Captain Renault from Casablanca turned out to be the puppeteer today. Every Chinese-oriented industrial might as well call him that, right? Come on. Every single line flew right back around to where it was before the president unveiled that uh, budget tariff target of $200 billion. What else? A huge amount of money flowed into the cloud kings and the semiconductor stocks. Ordinarily, I'm a big believer in the idea that there's no new money coming into this market whatsoever, aside from what goes into index funds by rote. But how about when you get a spigot that opens in tech? Well, we got that today when Broadcom changed its stripes. The gigantic semiconductor company announced that it's buying a software business linked to mainframe hardware, and its stock plunged more than 13%. That's the opposite of what investors expected from Broadcom's equivalent of CEO Hock Tan, the guy who tried and failed to buy Qualcomm not that long ago. Or as a Twitter wag pointed out, we haven't seen a stock get crushed this hard since I slammed defense giant Stark Industries when Tony Stark decided to get out of the armaments business. I mean, I still get like about a 27 cent royalty check, you know, every couple of months. All right. But all these people who sold Broadcom had to put their money somewhere. It was almost as if they flocked to every single tech company they liked more, if only just to show their revulsion to the now disemboweled Broadcom. What did they do? They plowed into the cloud kings. Now, I know some would say they're called the Kramer cloud kings, but even I, an egomaniacal crazed man, can't do that. So anyway, they pushed into the Kramer Cloud Kings, Adobe, Salesforce, ServiceNow, Splunk, Workday, last night's guest VMware, and even ne'er-do-well quarter misser Red Hat. They all soared beyond reason. They piled into the semis that are like what Broadcom was until last night. Texas Instruments, NVIDIA, my dog, and analog devices. And, of course, who can resist Fang stretched out like that because it's double A, meaning Amazon and Apple. What can I say? Despite all the so-called experts who keep writing obituaries on this group, the stocks just won't quit, at least with the exception of Netflix. More on that in a minute. The breath doesn't stop. The defense stocks got jiggy after stalling out yesterday. I think it's the irresistible notion that the Europeans may step up their military spending to placate President Trump, our arms dealer in chief. Remember, Raytheon's Patriot missiles are so easily bought that if some European leader orders a half dozen, say, the president would give them his own most favored nation status and invite him to Mar-a-Lago for nine holes. A dozen. Get you 18 holes. Then we got a strange one. You bash the price of drugs like the president did. The money then flows to MedTech. Huge rallies in aligned technology. The company that makes Invisalign braces. Intuitive Surgical and Illumina, all high-tech medical equipment. Oh, and with the roaring popularity of video games and, of course, eSports, Electronic Arts, Activision Blizzard, and Take-Two Interactive all burst higher yet again. Grand Theft Video? No. The Call of Duty to buy. Finally, there's Microsoft, the unsung nearly $800 billion 
trillion-dollar gorilla that no one even talks about as a stalking horse to the race to a trillion-dollar market cap. Do you ever hear anyone sing the praises of this one? CEO Satya Nadella has quietly turned Microsoft into a cloud powerhouse with Azure and a service hitter with LinkedIn. No one seems to care, except the endless buyers, of course. Microsoft is the quiet, multi-hundred billion dollar billionaire of this market. Just going about its business, not a fang name, no real sponsorship, but here it is, again, hitting an all-time high. Now, on any given day, you know there's always going to be a party pooper, right? Today, it was the best-performing stock of our era, Netflix. Why? Because UBS's proprietary research arm, known as the Evidence Lab, UBS CSI, well, don't you love that? Raised its price target dramatically for the stock, but also at the same time downgraded from buy to hold. Essentially because some research showing that people are binging less on new sequels like Luke Cage 2. I haven't had a chance to check it out. I love Luke Cage 1. I have no idea how they got this beyond checking Google search. But the downgrade does seem like the right thing to do. It could be a great call if there really is a shortfall when Netflix reports. Hey, then the guy can upgrade it to a buy. Uh, that's a mighty big gift. Bottom line. This is a day where the buyers could not be stopped. They knew the president was hanging with the queen. They knew his newfound opponents, a.k.a. America's NATO allies, were figuring out how to appease the guy. They must be thinking he's just too way over the top. And so they just couldn't resist buying just about everything except for the once loved, now scorned Broadcom. Daniel in New Jersey, Daniel! Hey, Jim. How you doing? What an honor to be live with you on the air. Uh, good to have you call in. What's going on? Not too much. I wanted to talk to you real quick about Blue Apron, because we all know that when it IPO'd, it was terrible timing with Amazon, you know, acquiring Whole Foods and stuff. And it hit a tremendous low at $1.99, where I bought a ton of it. Nice. And, and since then, I'm already pretty much doubled up, but I still think that there's a lot of room for this uh, company to grow. At yeah, least and here's what you're going to do, Daniel. Tomorrow morning, you're going to take out all of your money that you put in, and then you're going to forget about it and play with the house's money, which is the most glorious situation imaginable. Bill in South Carolina. Bill! Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you? I'm doing all right. A little hot down here, but then again, it is the South. That can happen. It is the yeah, summer. Well, that's the thing about the South, yeah. Question about Andarco Petroleum and EOG Resources. I know where you are on uh, Andarco. I'm long the shares. I know you've got them in the Action Alerts Plus portfolio. Do you recommend either beginning a new position in EOG or adding to an existing position with uh, Andarco? I think you shouldn't have. You don't need. You don't need to have even another oil name. We can just own Andarco, which just announced a fantastic ah. buyback and a rationalization of his balance sheet this very week. Although I, everyone knows I like EOG too. Richard in California. Richard. Yeah. Hello, Jim. Yes. Yo, yo, Kramer. How you doing? Oh, Chief, I'm good. What's happening? Hey, I I got two big franchise stocks. And one of them is coming up for the season, and that's Kohl's. And I'd like to, you gave me a good blessing last year, and you made a lot of money. And I'm just wondering if you got good vibes on Kohl's for this year. Okay, really great question. I told members of the ActionLearnsPlus.com uh, club on my call yesterday that I felt that Kohl's could have some weakness. It's had a very big run, but after the weakness goes down the, to the high 60s, those who hadn't bought it, it's time. All right, the buyers just couldn't be stopped today. 
This is about China blinking people and the president's new opponents changing their tune. Oh man, buddy, tonight, think the market's too expensive? You're not alone, but I'm revealing the only way that could truly be the case. Then there's one overlooked group that's impacted by a trade war between the U.S. and China, and it could and perhaps should be in your portfolio. Don't make a move before I reveal the sector. And it's a stock that's quadrupled over the past years, and you may never even heard of it. I'll reveal it coming up. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day, clearly and concisely in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. We keep hearing the same tale of woe. Uh, even on terrific days like today, the market's too expensive. The averages are dangerously elevated. Just you wait. You'll see how ugly this thing can get. We went up on nothing. We'll go down hard on everything. Sure, I got the litany. I mean, blah, blah, blah. But the more I think about certain calls, certain stocks, certain valuations, the more I recognize that we really have to stop relying so much on the idea of the market. Because the valuation for many big capitalization stocks just aren't that expensive here. Or to put it another way, there's Amazon. There's Netflix. Downgraded today by UBS and a rare bit of discord among the analysts. And there's pretty much everything else. I think these two in the endlessly talked about Tesla are obscuring what's really going on here. Notice, first of all, I didn't say Fang is obscuring the valuations. That would be wrong because the three and five of those are fairly inexpensive when you look at it. I mean, it was easy to see how Facebook could fall off a cliff if people actually were worried about privacy when they're seeking to promote themselves online. Kind of oxymoronic when you think about it. I mean, why not? The media had a field day with this privacy stuff, and they're probably not even done having that field day. Just yesterday, on a day when tariffs dominated the news correctly, the business section of the New York Times harped on Facebook being fined $660,000, the largest fine that some agency none of us really care about could slap on him. I mean, hello, you could steal $660,000 from Mark Zuckerberg and he wouldn't even notice it's gone. The fact is, Facebook sells for just 22 times next year's earnings estimates. And at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. The only thing that the investigation has done is shrink the stock's price earnings multiple, not the earnings, but will people pay for those earnings, which is another way of saying the stock's cheaper than it deserves to be. Same goes for Alphabet. The possibility of government regulation plus the opaque nature of all the other businesses aside from core Google makes the company hard to value. Meanwhile, we've decided that all we care about is how much it costs Google to get clicks, not how lucrative it is across the board. That's why the stock trades at just 26 times next year's earnings estimates. But wait a second. Maybe we should figure out what it sells for excluding the 101 Billion dollars in cash and its balance sheet, more like 23 times earnings when you look at it like that. Apple sells at nearly 14 times next fiscal year's earnings. 
That was fine when the company's a pure cell phone story with a PC and tablet kicker. But the Apple we all know now is the subscription play that we pay money to every month, just like we do with Netflix, with Spotify, with Costco, with the Amazon. That's a sticky revenue stream. One will probably never kick. 14 times earnings for Apple is now outrageous because of that. Outrageously wrong especially given the company's nearly $300 billion cash hoard. Back out the cash, and it's more like 10 times earnings. It's not just FANG. This morning, Goldman Sachs upgrades J&J from a sell to a hold. When I saw where the stock was trading 15 times next year's earnings, I was shocked. This is a premier American company with the best balance sheet in the world and amazing management. J&J was ordered by a St. Louis jury tonight to pay at least $550 million in damages to women who claim that the company's talc product caused ovarian cancer. For many companies, this could be way too much to bear. It might not even matter to this fortress balance sheet enterprise. You see Disney 15 times earnings? I mean, that's what you get because of cord cutting worries. But what if they buy Fox? Better story. We're in a strange time, people. The vast majority of commentators seem to think the market is ridiculously expensive. To me, The only way the market's truly expensive is if you believe that 2019 is going to be a nasty, horrendous year where there's a full stop to all businesses a la the Great Recession from a decade ago and all these estimates are too high, all of them, and they have to be cut. Maybe that's where the disconnect really lies. People got burned in 2008 are conditioned to find the market expensive. Maybe we all assume that when the Fed raises rates endlessly, it will crush all stocks, like when the Fed raised rates 17 times going into the Great Recession. I'm making the case that perhaps we should just value the market as it is, with a lot of cheap big cap stocks and some expensive ones. When you do that, you don't need to fear the Fed or the tape. It's a nice, benign, and you know what? I think lucrative way to look at things. Let's go to Paul in Pennsylvania, please. Paul. Yes, sir. I have a bunch of ADP stock, and it's been doing very, very well. And I want to know if it's time to get out of it, because I'm afraid it may take a dump. Hey, ADP's terrific. We're not going to get rid of that stock. As a matter of fact, on any weakness, just call me a buyer of ADP, although I would do it less scatologically. All right, let's call what it is. There are a lot of cheap stocks and some expensive ones, and that's that. There's much more mad money, including my take on a sector that you may have overlooked in the trade war tie-up. Man, I'm talking with the CEO of a company that's taking a radical approach to treating mental health diseases, and I think it's going to be a very profitable one. And the utilities are picking up steam as of late, but I'm eyeing one company in the space that's declining here. Hey, what's behind that move? I'm talking to the CEO of Vistra Energy. Hey, it's one of the top five in the country. Stick with Kramer. We're constantly talking about the victims of this trade dispute with China. It just keeps escalating. Last night I told you to round up the usual suspects, the ones that get slammed rightly or wrongly every time tariffs are back in the headlines. But for all the chatter you hear about the industrials getting slammed because of their Chinese exposure, there is one often overlooked group that is very much in the crosshairs. The big international casino stocks like Wynn Resorts, Las Vegas Sands, and even MGM to a lesser extent. These three names have come down substantially from their highs. And you know what? Maybe they deserve every penny of it. In particular, Wynn and Las Vegas Sands have more exposure to Macau, the Chinese gambling haven, than they do to the United States. Yep, they're China plays first and foremost. 
They spend fortunes building casinos in Macau. MGM has a smaller pl- presence over there, but they just opened their second Macau property in February, and that's a $3.4 billion casino. Here's the problem. If things get really bad between the U.S. and China, then it would be the easiest thing in the world for the Chinese Communist Party to wreck these gaming companies. We often talk about the possibility of government-sponsored boycotts, but they wouldn't even need to go that far. The casino industry is highly regulated. If China wants to, to, you know what they can do? They can take away the gaming licenses or impose all kinds of restrictions on American-owned casinos. And hey, we're already seeing a deceleration. The overall Macau gaming numbers, I got to tell you, I found them disappointing in May, and then they were disappointing again in June. Don't get me wrong. I'm one of the few people who believes we can win this trade war and perhaps even win it quickly. But the risk reward with the Macau-oriented casino stocks has now become very much against you. When in Las Vegas Sands get more than half of their business from China, they're hostage to the goodwill of the Chinese government. Beyond that, the Shanghai stock market's been getting killed there, which means Chinese high rollers have less money to burn at the casino. Put it all together, and the potential bear case here is a lot worse than, uh, well, let's say then for the industrials, a lot worse than I thought even, let's say, a month ago. I think Wynn and Las Vegas Sands both need to be treated as guilty until proven innocent now. MGM's tougher story. It's much more domestic-oriented, and it's incredibly well-run. I've been a big fan of the stock. If we're just judging this one based on the fundamentals, I'd tell you to be a buyer here, because MGM's main market is Las Vegas, and Vegas is in incredible shape. But the stock is being dumped along with Wynn and Las Vegas Sands every time there's a new flare-up with China. And you know, I don't think that's over, and I don't blame anyone who's just lost their patience. So I am circumspect about winning LVS, and while I'd hold MGM, that's only if you're willing to be patient. But because I'm a Johnny Mercer kind of guy, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, let me put a positive spin on things. The global gaming companies may be too risky, but the totally domestic players, they're on fire here. The only problem is that unlike Wynn or Las Las Vegas Sands or MGM, these companies are not exactly household names, which is why I want to circle back to them tonight to remind you of their existence. Say hello to Boyd Gaming, Penn National Gaming, Churchill Downs, and VICI. Before I go into these one by one, let me spell out the broader thesis here. The domestic gambling bull market really boils down to two simple stories. For starters, We've got a roaring economy and a very strong consumer who can afford to burn a little money, which is why we're seeing a major uptick in gambling revenues in the places where it's legal. On top of that, a couple of months ago, the Supreme Court legalized sports gambling at the federal level. Since then, a bunch of states have legalized it, too, and started taking bets like Delaware, New Jersey. You don't need to overthink this one, people. Obviously, sports betting is already a huge business. It's just illicit in most places. Recently, Morgan Stanley estimated that bookies take in $7.5 billion a year. I think that's a low-ball number. And they see two-thirds of that ultimately flowing to legitimate outfits. Speaking of legitimate outfits, I think it's a, a, the smaller regional gambling plays who really benefit from legalized bookmaking. They've got the existing infrastructure, and they seem to have a head start on the larger casino operations. So let's go through them one by one so you understand the importance of legalized sports betting around the country to these companies. First is Boyd Gaming and Penn National. They're the two leading regional players. Boyd owns 24 properties across seven states, including a large presence in Vegas, significant exposure to the Midwest, and the Deep South. Think Louisiana and Mississippi. In Vegas, this is a company that's made a name for itself, catering to locals rather than tourists, although they own three downtown properties, the Fremont, Main Street Station, and the California. Plus, they're all over the heartland from Wichita, Kansas to Biloxi, Mississippi. More important, 
Board Gaming is a very well-run company that's making a host of small acquisitions to expand its reach. And I think it stands to be a huge winner from legalized sports betting. Next up, there's Penn National Gaming, which is like Boyd without the Vegas exposure. Just a pure play on regional gaming and racing with 29 facilities across 17 jurisdictions from California to Massachusetts and Florida to Ontario. Now, last December, we learned that Penn National is acquiring Pinnacle Entertainment for $2.8 billion in a deal that should produce $100 million worth of run rate cost synergies. This is a huge deal for a $3.3 billion company. Even before the transaction, though, Penn National was already working hard to improve itself with a bunch of initiatives that have been boosting the company's margins. Put it all together, and I think this is exactly the kind of stock that works in an environment where the U.S. economy is red hot, but everyone's concerned about world trade. Third, this is one you might know, Churchill Downs, right? It's the venue that hosts the Kentucky Derby. However, in reality, this company is more of a diversified gaming business. They own three more racetracks, Arlington Park in Illinois, Calder Racecourse in Florida, and Fairgrounds Racecourse in New Orleans. They got a casino business with nine properties in eight states, Mississippi, Maine, Florida, Ohio, New York, Colorado, and Maryland. Third, Churchill Downs has an online betting division, Twinspires.com, as well as a horse racing research and information services business. If you want a way to play legalization of sports betting, it's hard to think of a better way to play than a company that owns horse tracks. The stock caught fire after a reported blowout quarter in April. I mean, it really was just beautiful. I think it's got more upside. Finally, let me give you another way to approach this, and this is VICI Properties. This is a real estate investment trust that was spun off of heritage assets from Caesars, namely the land under the hotels and casinos and some golf courses. And we just spoke to the CEO, Ed Pitoniak, Pitoniak, that's P-I-T-O-N-I-A-K, and at the end of May, and he told a good story. The stock's given us a quick 8% gain since that interview. Think of it as an arm's-length way to play the industry. It's one that supports a 5% yield. I think that's terrific. Here's the bottom line. The big international casino stocks have been selling off because of their China exposure. But fortunately, we've got domestic alternatives that are doing fabulously. Boyd Gaming, Penn National, and Churchill Downs are best of breed, while VICI gives you a nice REIT alternative. Let's go to Judy in New York. Judy. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you, Judy? Great. I'm well. Thank you. Hey, Jim, I used to work for Starwood Hotels, so I have an interest in Marriott. Yesterday, they announced a deal with Alibaba to test facial recognition at check-in. Do you think this will have a positive impact on the stock, or should I pack my bags and go no, to another no, no. hotel? No, no, no. It won't have a positive impact on the stock, but you don't need it. You see, you know why? Because the stock is now down 4% for the year. That's highly unusual. It's an incredibly well-run company. I really think that Arnie Sorensen's done a remarkable job. Bye, bye, bye. I am going to tell you to buy some more. All right, for the love of the game, domestic casino stocks are doing fabulously. Stick to those. And let's get a little more cautious about the international ones. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with a company that's exploring the potential for patients suffering from mental health illnesses to feel better within days. Totally novel. You're not going to want to miss this one. Then, with utilities making a major comeback after spending uh, so long in the doghouse, well, I'm going to sit down with a major player in the space to see what's ahead. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. What 
do you do when a once red-hot biotech stock starts to cool off a bit? Consider the case of Sage Therapeutics, S-A-G-E for you home gamers. It's a development stage biopharma company that's focused on treating central nervous system disorders, especially clinical depression. Here's a stock that's been a huge long-term winner. Last year, Sage saw its shares more than triple, including a 70% gain in a single session last December when we got some very positive Phase two data on its depression treatment. It's so novel. But lately, it hasn't done that much. In fact, it's only up slightly. It's better than me and down. It's down nearly 30 points from its January highs, though. Still, I like this story. Sage tries to develop novel drugs that address gaps in the current available treatment options. Basically, the drugs work through different pathways than the typical run of anti depressants. And they're also testing this technology on Parkinson's sleep disorders. Their lead product is a postpartum depression injection that's currently waiting for FDA approval, which means it could potentially come out in the first half of next year it will be used. So is this stock really taking a breather? Let's dig deeper with Dr. Jeff Jonas, the CEO of Sage Therapeutics, learn more about his company and get a better sense of where it's headed. Dr. Jonas, welcome to Mad Money. Great to see you, Doc. Have a seat. Thanks for really having me. Really terrific that you're here. All right, so tell me something. Say something's wrong with your liver. People say, wow. Got a liver problem. Something's wrong with your kidney. So, geez, kidney problem. What happens if you say you're depressed? You know, that's a great question, Jim. Again, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. We're really dedicated to thinking differently about depression and to make people think about depression like a disease and a disorder, not a lifestyle. People with depression are very ill. People, women with postpartum are very ill. And they deserve the same type of urgent therapeutic interventions like someone with a broken leg might need or someone with a seizure might need. Well, that's just such a fresh way to look at it. It's particularly at a time when I think people may not realize, but there's an epidemic of suicide. And yes, it's people taking their lives by their own hands, but it's often because of what you're trying to address. You know, depression is obviously a leading cause of suicide, and it's also one of the leading areas of unmet medical need and one of the leading causes of workplace morbidity in the first world. Our ther current therapeutic options have been in place for almost two decades. There's been a positive innovation and a real reluctance to think differently about how we might treat these patients more urgently and, frankly, more effectively. Well, when I heard, when I did get to interview in a, a healthcare conference I was involved with, and you were involved with postpartum depression, I was shocked to know there's really got nothing. Yeah. And you've got something that could be very close. Well, we're really excited about this. This is an intravenous treatment called brexanolone. You're talking about 400,000 and plus women in the U.S. alone who get this diagnosis. It's one of the leading causes of maternal death after childbirth, and there are no approved therapies. We've got this drug, uh, brexanolone, and we've done three controlled trials, and all of them, we've gotten about a, almost a 70% remission rate after two and a half days of treatment. That's staggering. What would it be without? If people had nothing, or like, what do they tell people? Take aspirin? What do they have? Well, conventional therapies, you know, which aren't terrible, are SSRIs, or right. serotonin right. reuptake inhibitors. You get on that drug, you wait often six to eight weeks, and then you're maybe on it chronically. Today, in the U.S. alone, 25 million people are currently on chronic antidepressant therapy for two years or more. Our approach is the idea of getting a rapid, robust, and durable response, and the idea that if you can get better in two and a half days, if we can achieve that, why would you wait six to eight weeks? Okay, now, when I hear that, I immediately think, because I'm familiar with some of these therapies, I would pay anything for that, so to speak. But the federal government doesn't anymore. And how do we teach the federal government that a short course that is a, seems, seems like it's high price is a lot less expensive than those long courses that don't do as well? You know, we have to change the way people think about depression. You know, right now, people almost view depression like a lifestyle. We want to make it a treatable disorder. I know. And payers, we, we are, we're in discussion with payers, obviously. And so the value proposition, we think, is innovation, 
getting people better in two and a half days. Imagine if you had a broken leg, right? And if someone said, go home, maybe in eight weeks you'll be better. And if not, we can get you better in two and a half days. That's the kind of argument we have to make with payers and with physicians. We're really changing a business model of changing the way doctors think about depression from a chronic disorder to a treatable disorder that you can get the treatment and then stop it when you're better. Doc, I want people to really understand this. I want you, I want you to tell them a little about uh, how you approach this because it was also novel versus a lot of the executives we have on. <laughs> well, no one believed this when we started, of course. And of course, that's when you challenge conventional wisdom. Hey. And frankly, that's the fun of biotech. We, are, we, we can take a chance to do something different for patients. And our approach is really to change the way we think about depression. We have a molecule and a mechanism that calms the brain down. We have a different theory of depression. The brain's not a tumor. The brain is a complex neural circuitry. You can't, you can't biopsy the brain and find out what's going on, right? No. You have to treat people. And when you treat people, we just decided if we could calm the brain down, there might be an opportunity to reset the way the brain is working, almost like, you know, almost like a reboot. And that was our theory. And it turns out we've done four studies controlled with three of the intravenous, one with an oral. And each time we've seen that kind of rapid and robust response, and it's been reproducible. So that gives us a lot of confidence that we can then make this value profit. Now, we're really only talking about this one indication, but major depressive disorder, Parkinson's, uh, bipolar, gigantic unmet needs, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we, we may, you know, again, biotech, we have big visions. The team at Sage has done a great job embracing this kind of do big approach. And one of the things that we think distinguishes Sage is we're not a one shot wonder, we're not a two shot wonder. We have this great pipeline of different molecules, and we think not, but Street is focused on depression right. and postpartum. We have programs potentially for Parkinson's, for essential tremor, insomnia, and other drugs that may even affect ADHD and Alzheimer's. So we're very excited. Uh, yes, be careful with Alzheimer's. You once told me how hard that is to crack, right? Well, you know, I, again, I've worked in that area, and again, it's terribly hard to crack, but we think we may have an approach that's different, and again, it's early days for us, and it's still early. We have a molecule called Sage 718 that's in phase one or early stage okay. testing. So it's still early days, but we think there may be an approach to enhance cognition in Huntington's, Parkinson's, um, Alzheimer's, and even ADHD. Well, I, I hope people at home understand it's the approach that the doctor is taking that makes it so that I think this is such a fabulous investment. These, these drugs that are coming, they're just proof of your view of life, not just medicine, but life. That's Dr. Jeff Jonas. He's the CEO of Sage Therapeutics. He's different. The stocks buy. Their money's back here to the break. It is time! It's time! And then the lighting round is over. Are you ready, Skate Daddy? It's over the lighting round. I'm starting with Curtis in North Carolina. Curtis. Hello, Kevin Jim. Thanks for taking the call today, man. I want you to know we appreciate you out here. We appreciate you out here in Kramerica. Ah, you're very kind. Thank you. Jim, I'm calling today about Next Era Energy, formerly Florida Power and Light Corporation. I think they're pioneers in green energy and they offer most adequate dividend yield. Would, uh, what would your thoughts be on this? No, this, this has been one of our favorites. It's an aggressive bye, 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 grower that also gives you yield. I regard as a growth stock as utility. Really good call. Let's go to Craig in New York. Craig! Yeah, first of all, thank you for yesterday's members only call. It's oh, I guess the actual call. Thank you very much. My stock is Cigna CI. Okay, when Dave Cardani came on, it was, the stock was right around here. Ah, I continue to believe it deserves to be much higher than doing an acquisition with Express Scripts. The stock is undervalued. 
May I go to Tom in Ohio? Tom. Hello, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Okay. I, I, with the rising demand in lithium and many players, I took a position with SQM and wanted your take on it. Well, Society Chemica is not an expensive stock if lithium takes off. But lithium has not taken off, so I'm going to have to tell you I may be on the other side of the trade on your Societad Chemica. Let's go to Tyler in Ohio. Tyler. Booyah, Jimmy. Tyler from Ohio here. All right, Tyler. Uh, my brother and I bought my dad's uh, stock in WWE for Father's Day, and I was just wondering if it was buy, sell, or I hold. think it actually is a buy. You know, it's moved up a lot, but remember, Strauss Selling first introduced it to us, and they've got a fantastic subscription model. And we love subscription models here on Mad Money. I'm going to Stan in Maryland. Stan. Good evening, Jim, and thank you very much for taking my call. Of course. I own... LRCX, Lamb Research Corporation, for about a half a year, and now, unfortunately, it's in the red. Well, remember Most what? Stock- remember, Lamb on the conference call was not that bullish. They talked about the second half not being that great. Now the stock has come down a great deal. It yields 2.5 percent, but not until not until it gets to 3 percent would I say, you know what, we got to buy. I think Martin Ansys is fantastic, but the semi-equipment stocks are not the right place to be at this point in the cycle. Let's go to Matt in Maine, Matt. Kramer! Oh, man. What's going on? What are we going to do with Skechers, man? I don't know. Down 18%, sells at 14 times earnings. It's kind of in the buy, sell, hold category. I'm going to just put it distinctly in the hold category. Let's go to Sunny and Ohio Sunny. Good evening, sir. I'm wondering what are your thoughts on uh, WST, Western Pharmaceutical Services? Thank you for taking my call. You know, I've always felt that this thing is kind of flotsam and jet. Drug delivery doesn't really interest me. I mean, I would take buy J&J on any weakness if we get something uh, negative on, uh, because of some of the, st- the news stories about town tonight. That would be a better opportunity. I need to go to Shakur in New Jersey. Shakur. Hey, Jim. I'm a longtime caller, first-time listener. Okay. I wanted to get, I wanted to get your thoughts on Cloudera. Ticker symbol C L D R. Software for storage. I got to tell you, they're not directly applicable, but software software defined storage is VMware, and we are cloud key believers here. Sanjay Puno and last night told a great story. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Lately, the utilities have been making a major comeback after spending a long time in the doghouse as interest rates have cooled off a bit, diminishing the bond market competition. But there's one weird utility stock that's had the opposite journey, roaring higher earlier this year, only to sell off since mid-June. I'm talking about Vistra Energy, the Texas-based utility that acquired Dynegy for $1.7 billion earlier this year, picking up some major retail and power generation assets in the Northeast. The Dynegy deal is why Vistra performed so well earlier this year. Uh, it stocks about more than 20, 26% for 2018, as it's made this company the lowest cost integrated power company in America. But when the utilities came back into style a few weeks ago, investors decided to flock to the beaten down names rather than the winners, which is why Vistra, which does not pay a dividend, unlike the use that soared, seems to have stalled out. So what are we supposed to do with this unusual utility? The company held its analyst day last month, and I think they told a pretty darn good story, but that doesn't seem to have helped for now. Let's take a closer look with Kurt Morgan. He's the president and CEO of Vistra. 
Mr. Energy. Find out more about how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Morgan, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Uh, glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, Kurt, before we get started, I think people have to recognize they may not have heard of Vistra Energy, but you are one of the largest utilities in our entire country. That's correct. You know, we've got about 41,000 megawatts of generation, about 3,000 or excuse me, 3 million customers uh, in, in across the U.S. in the major regions of you know, Texas and the uh, uh, area in the mid-continent, in the, in the mid-Atlantic, and then up into the Northeast. So we are, I think, the, uh, probably the largest integrated power company right now in the country. Look, you've got a broad set of assets. Could you give us an overview, particularly, say, in Texas? I know where you even have stuff in the permit. Is there a manufacturing renaissance like I see where you've got some big industrial companies that are burning up a lot of energy right now from you? Yeah, in Texas, you know, we have about 2% growth in power, which is about double what the national average is. In fact, it's probably more than double the national average. If you come to any of the major cities, Dallas, Houston, and Austin, uh, and as well as San Antonio, you'll see a lot of construction, a lot of distribution centers. And so the, the, the demand growth is been, has been significant. And I think you know we have uh, one point, essentially 1.7 million customers in Texas, and we've got the the most well-known brand called TXU Energy. So it's it's a really great business for us, generating about 800 million dollars of EBITDA, and on 12, or excuse me, about 20 million dollars of capital to sustain that. So it drops down a substantial amount of of the EBITDA down to free cash flow, so, which is is huge for our company. Now that means you have a chance you can do some acquisitions, which is what I want, frankly, because I know you've got low cost power. Or conceivably, one day you could pay a good dividend, the way many of our viewers seem to like that just regular stream of income. Yeah, you know, I think one of the big things about us, because we generate about $3 billion of EBITDA and we drop down about 60% of that to free cash flow, that's a lot of cash for a company of our size. And so we think a dividend is is in the future of the company. The question for us really will be whether it's in 19 or in 2020, but we have enough cash flow to be able to do that. We think it's the right thing. And, you know, we're a value play. Uh, and so we're going to distribute value back to shareholders in the form of dividends or stock buybacks, but we'll also be able to reinvest in our business. And we're focused right now mainly on the retail side of our business for growth. Now, you're also uh, a, a kind of, let's say, a very forward thinking company, because I want you to talk about the 300 megawatt battery storage project you're developing in California. That seems like the way of the future. It is. You know, California is way ahead of everybody else in terms of where they want to take their uh, you know, their, their power business in California. Uh, what's interesting about California now, they have so much solar, Jim, that they have too much power during the day, during the peak period, and they're having to back off conventional generation in order to allow the solar to come in. Their problem is in a reverse of everybody else. When the sun goes down, they need resources to come on. And that's why they like these, this big battery installation, because it can come on instantaneous when the sun goes down and it can continue to produce power uh, during the peak periods. And we have a site that's about an hour and a half south of San Francisco that is ideal for this battery uh, installation. It'll make it, like you said, the largest in the world. Uh, and it's going to be quite, quite an opportunity for this company. It's going to put us in a leadership role. 
I want to go back to something you said about uh, low-cost power. You are in some very competitive places, uh, places where I know that you're up against really uh, very entrenched competitors. How are you able to wean uh, them, uh, your customers, uh, new customers, away from some power companies and basically just say, ah, you know, that's what I'm going to use. It's kind of what my parents use. It's what I use. Because I know that that's a very big obstacle to growing the way I'd like you to grow. It is. It is difficult. And, and I think what you have to do is you have to you know, develop a brand uh, and with a promise, but you also have to be able to be cost competitive. Uh, and and where we start is it's with our generation. Our generation is the lowest cost fleet. And so what's important for us is to be able to produce that product and be able to put together the kind of products and services uh, that is necessary for customers. And if we can do that and have a, a, a very competitive product offering, uh, we, we can build our business and grow it over time. And, and that's what we plan to do. But how do you tell people? I mean, for instance, let's say, would you like, I get something in the mail. I live in New Jersey that says that you can get me a lower rate. Maybe you should switch. I'm trying to figure out the, how do I even discern the value proposition? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think you have, you know, there, you have to use, you know, social media, uh, also direct mail type uh, uh, and, and, and direct marketing. And you have to convince a customer that your proposition is better than the one they have. And most of the time on the front end, to be quite honest with you, Jim, you have to offer them something. And, it, and so there's a cost to acquisition of a customer in many markets, $100, $150 that you have to put into marketing, but also maybe give them a lower cost product to begin when to, to woo them away. And then if you can provide them very good service and they get comfortable with you, you can keep them for the long run. But there is a cost to acquisition for customers. It's lower, by the way, um, you know, to build it okay. organically than it is to go out and try to buy a company already in it. All right. Fascinating. I've got to tell you, I'm a huge backer of your story. I like growth utilities. That's Kurt Morgan. He's Vistra Energy's president and CEO. It's a good stock, man. Money's back after the break. I think tomorrow will be day two of the defense stock rally. Like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening what it all means get the truth not the spin the news with shepherd smith subscribe to the podcast today